0: So it was about 2,000 years ago, and and there was this group of people, and they were known as Pharisees. And these Pharisees, man, they were deeply committed to God. They were deeply passionate for God. The average Jewish person could only dream of being as committed to God and as passionate to God. And so the average Jewish person had tremendous respect for the Pharisees and for their incredible passion for God. But when Jesus ended up showing up on the scene, these people who are deeply committed to God, who are passionate for God, they ended up opposing Jesus at every single turn. Eventually they even had Jesus arrested and crucified. So we've been asking the question in this series, how, how, how's it possible that somebody who's passionate for God and deeply committed to God, how is it that they could stand in opposition to the very heart and priorities of God? Well, it happened accidentally. It was never their intent. And you and I are talking about this because the reality is you and I can accidentally find ourselves opposing the very heart, the very values, and the, and the very uh, passions of God that He has for our lives. And so each week, we're asking you to come here. And even now in this moment, to ask God to show you ways in which you have accidentally stood in opposition to God's heart and priorities and values. These last couple weeks, we've been talking about how our passionate pursuit of God can be a good thing, but it can have a dark side that exists. And, and, and that happens in our, our lives in so many ways. And so one of the things we, we have said is if we're not careful, a dark side of our spiritual passion for God is we can send a message to others that God's grace is only available to those that we think deserve it. That God's grace isn't really truly available to all people. For the Pharisees, this showed up in their arrogance, in their pride, in the way that they looked down on other people. And God told us in Proverbs 6 that that's the number one thing God hates. When we have an arrogant pride where we are looking down on other people. And so Jesus addressed this. One time in Luke chapter 18, it tells us that Jesus was addressing the people who were looking down on others. And he shares a story and he talked specifically about a Pharisee and who looked down on others. And Jesus mentioned, here's what the Pharisee prayed. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like them the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even tax collectors. In other words, the Pharisees saying God's grace is available, but it's only available to a select few. It's not available to those people, but Jesus made it clear. God's grace is available to all. That God's grace comes to us before we even change our behavior. It comes to us before we even get all fixed up. It comes to us before we believe all the right things. In fact, that's why it's grace. Because God is, or grace is God blessing us even when we don't deserve it. Listen, we want to be a church where anybody can walk through our doors and that they can be welcomed because we have committed to God to dispense His grace, not to some people, but to all people. In fact, last week we, we talked about a, a book, Messy Grace, by Caleb Kaltenbach. And Gr- Caleb just says, if we're going to disseminate that type of grace to all people, that grace is going to be available, the grace of God is available to all people, that means grace is going to get a little messy. It's not going to be as clean and in a box as maybe some of us would hope. And so last week we, we read some of the questions that Caleb asked in his book. And man, listen, those questions got a lot of us thinking last week. A lot of you talking to me and saying, man, I don't want to be an accidental Pharisee. I don't want to limit God's grace just to those that I think deserve it. In fact, I'm going to leave that to God. I'm going to leave the judgment to God. I'm going to leave someone's spiritual journey to God and their growth in God. I'm going to let God work on them. I'm just dispensing His grace to all people. I, I just alluded to it, but I received quite a few cards, emails, and texts this week. And I gotta tell you, it's thrilling to hear your stories, to hear your journeys, and even to hear some of your struggles as you've been trying to figure out how do I demonstrate grace to all people. One particular email was from an individual here at LifePoint who has absolutely had first-hand knowledge and experience with the questions that Caleb was posing for us last week. Again, if you weren't here last week, it's summer, and we kind of come and go more than normal. Uh, if you weren't here, you're going to want to go back and watch or listen to that message. It's really, really important what God's doing in this journey together. But this person who had first-hand knowledge and experience, I, I would say, listen to them hearing their story, they, they're somewhat of an expert on the topic Caleb was talking about. Now, I'm not going to go into their whole email, of course, but I want to read the last paragraph because I think the last paragraph is so well stated as somebody who's understanding and getting us to understand and think about some questions that we want to wrestle with if we're going to actually be committed to God's grace, a grace that does get messy at times. And the person said this, if we are committed to messy grace in church, there's going to be times when our organization gets in the way of what God may want to do. Not everyone who comes in may even know how to behave in church. They may not have the social skills. They may even be hostile. If we're going to seek the lost and bring them in, then we better be prepared. For example, we need to be better prepared how to love two men standing in the lobby if they're holding hands, or two married women asking to be part of a life group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, if the presence and power of God is truly in our midst, then we won't have to worry about how to uphold scriptural godliness regarding behavior. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts and lives. We just have to be obedient as his instruments of that messy grace. Man, this person captured God's heart so incredibly well. And also, I, going along with that, I think Caleb's conclusion that he was talking about and wrestling with for us last week has really been something I've been thinking about and I've challenged us to think about. That if God's grace is truly available to all people and we're going to make that grace available to all people, then that means that church needs to be a place where people can belong, that they can be connected even before they believe all the right things, even before they behave in all the right ways. But the Pharisees, they said, that's not, we don't see it that way. We think you need to believe all the right things. We think you need to do all the right things and behave in the right way before you can belong. And so consequently, the Pharisees were just writing people off, all sorts of groups of people. And because of their pride and because they were looking down on others, they just dismissed entire categories of people. So Jesus had to confront them. Why? Because Jesus was making it clear, you know who I came to seek and to save? I came to seek and to save those who are behind, those who are fallen, those who are not so perfect, those who are messed up, those who are imperfect. So I'm wondering, did you spend any time this week thinking about who's on your Luke 18, 11 list? Who's on your thank God I'm not like them list? I don't know who... You're them. It's different for all of us. But but I would say this. Let's be real for a moment. We all have a thank God I'm not like them list, don't we? Can we acknowledge that? I know I do. I received this one text from a person we connect uh, through text quite a bit. And the person said to me this. See if you can relate to this. They said, Chris i've struggled with this series and i truly have questioned whether i am even a christian or not no joking i do have a list it's not long but to me it's valid and then they went on talking about the list and all of that i won't read you everything they said but let me just share with you my response because i thought hey i'll just share with you you know quickly writing out what's the response so to some of you who have a list so some of you say man i'm even questioning my Christianity. Listen to what I responded to this person. I said this, I totally get it. I'm embarrassed by those on my list. Seriously. It's why a series like this is so important to allow God to work on all of us. And by the way, I feel totally justified in my list because I can make a sound argument for why my list exists as you can based on logic and reason and fairness and data and biblical directives. The hard part for me is how to figure out how to love, show compassion and grace, even to situations or people like you were talking about. I honestly don't have the exact answer yet. I think we need to just keep going down this road and this journey with God and discussing with others to help us in the process, to help us how to figure out how to love, but also still have our Christian principles and values. Can you relate to what I'm saying? To your first sentences. If our lists make us not Christians, then we're all in trouble. Our lists are another reason why we need Jesus to save us. Seriously, He died for our sins and our issues and our shortcomings and our faults and all. And I praise Him for it because I'm certainly not worthy. As Apostle Paul said, What a wretched man I am. Who can save? Jesus. Thanks for being real and let's keep taking this journey together. Does that resonate with anybody? Their text? My response? Like me, I'm hoping that you are asking God to work on you, to soften your heart, to open your heart to those not like you. Because Jesus was clear, I've called you to go to demonstrate love and grace and compassion to all people. Because if we don't do that, all we're going to have about our thank God I'm not like them list, all we're going to have is a whole bunch of stereotypes about them. God calls, say, go. Go. Begin to build relationships to show that God's grace is available to all people. There's another dark side of our spiritual passion. And that's that mercy gets crowded out. That mercy gets cast aside in our spiritual passions. This is, I want you to track with me. This is very important. The Pharisees, they came up with a whole bunch of rigid rules and extra biblical standards to help them distinguish them from the ungodly or the uncommitted or the not as committed. And ultimately, it created spiritual legalism on a mass scale. Legalism leaves little to no room for mercy. And so, Jesus went after their legalism often and he used the rules that they created around honoring the Sabbath. He used that to expose their legalistic hearts and their lack of mercy towards others. In fact, it appears as if Jesus breaking the Sabbath was his favorite extra added rule of theirs to break. He, it, it, like if you just kind of look through the Gospels, you're like, man, this is, Jesus really ran, went after this one a lot. Why? Because it perfectly illustrated how this, the Pharisees' spiritual passion for God was coming at the expense of mercy towards others. See, they fail to recognize what God said in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says this The Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. First, see that justice is done or do what is right. Second, let mercy be your what? I want to say this word together. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. So, what's mercy? if we're going to offer it to people and not cast it aside, well, biblical mercy is compassion. It's kindness. It's tenderheartedness. It's gentleness towards others. So the question is, why did Jesus tackle this rules around the Sabbath to illustrate and show their lack of mercy? And how did he do it? Well, he did it a couple of ways. For example, in in the 10 commandments, the Jewish 10 commandments, the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20 says, on it, you shall not do what? On it, you shall not do any, shall not do any work. That was open to interpretation. So the Pharisees created a whole bunch of laws and extra rules around the Sabbath to make sure that committed people to God would never violate the Sabbath. For example, the Pharisees said that if your animal fell in a pit that you could go, you could lift it out to save its life and that was not considered work. However, if a person was sick and you gave them medication to make them better or if you healed them, that was considered work and a violation of Sabbath law. Now it's easy today for you and I to say the Pharisees were wrong on that, right? I mean animal over a person. But their rationale for arguing with Jesus about Sabbath rules probably wasn't too different than the rationale we would have of anybody who's trying to be deeply committed to God. See, we need to understand the Pharisees weren't trying to make up arbitrary rules. They were actually well thought out. They were based on on logic and reason and scripture, just like the person and I who were texting back and forth talked about. We don't want to miss this because this is, otherwise we're in danger of being an accidental Pharisee. We don't want to miss this because this happens to us as well, that we do the same thing, that we have thoughts, ideas, logic, rationale, the scriptures, To support our passionate commitment to God. And then we travel this road as well. For example, churches or even denominations, they'll say, Well, the scriptures say to be holy, to be set apart, right? We know that. God's called us to be set apart, to be different than the world. You're not of, you know, and and He's called us to be different. As a result, what have Christians done? What have churches done? They've created rules around that to help us be deeply committed to God. It sounds noble, doesn't it? And so over the years, centuries, whatever, churches have created different types of rules. Here's, for example, there's to be, if you're going to be holy and set apart, there's to be no dancing. There's to be no drinking, no rated R movies, no gambling, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, or date women who do. For those who've heard that phrase before, some churches or denominations have even created rules that say don't have instruments in church. And I'm not here to judge them, but I, just, I came across this week uh, a particular website from one of these churches. I just thought it was so interesting on so many levels what they say on their website. They say this, since God has not commanded nor even suggested to us to play musical instruments in worship, we can be absolutely certain that if we don't use musical instruments, then he will be pleased with Christians singing if their worship comes from their heart. Since we cannot be absolutely certain that God finds the use of musical instruments an appropriate form of worship, then it seems quite foolish to risk His wrath by adding something which He did not clearly authorize us to do during collective worship. Apparently, this human singing voice, that musical instrument created by God Himself, is the only music that our Creator requires of us during a Christian worship assembly. Adding musical instruments to the worship service, therefore, seems as inappropriate as adding fish to the Lord's Supper. Again, I'm just trying to pick on that. You need to understand this type of church, this church, us, all of us, like the Pharisees, we will come up with laws and rules in our desire to be deeply committed to God. But in these desires and passions, we accidentally become Pharisees. Because in those laws and rules that we begin to add, we neglect mercy to others. For example, here's how it plays out. What happens, what has happened even maybe in your own life when you see other people, but especially Christians, who violate or have violated whatever your rules that you have created? What happens inside of us? We leave Little to no room for mercy on them because now we're focused on judging them. Or we're focused on tearing them down in some capacity and cutting holes in their disobedience, what we think is disobedient. Or we choose not to associate them with them. And on and on it goes. That's what the Pharisees did. There's another reason the Pharisees were arguing with Jesus about healing on the Sabbath. And it was because for them... As they're looking at Jesus, Jesus appeared to be flippant about his obedience to Scripture. For example, Jesus was constantly healing people on the Sabbath. He was healing uh, uh, the man with the withered hand in Matthew 12, and the, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, and in John 9, the man born blind. So Jesus was constantly healing on the Sabbath, I think going after the Pharisees and their lack of compassion for others. And they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, you're being flippant about being obedient to the Scriptures. You could wait a couple hours till sundown and then you could heal all you want. The dude's been blind his whole life. He can wait two more hours. Doesn't sound unreasonable, does it? But Jesus kept making a point they were missing when it comes to God and God's kingdoms and the priority of God. Mercy even trumps our sacrifices to God and for God every time. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus even said, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now Jesus wasn't just applying this principle of showing mercy to people who are in dire needs, you know, who needed uh, a healing. One day Jesus was walking through the fields with his disciples and they picked a few heads of of grain and and they, they, they husked them and then they ate them. The Pharisees thought that's unacceptable because Scripture says, Exodus 34, you are forbidden on the Sabbath to harvest. They had determined that one person walking through the the fields, if they just huss that and eat a couple right there, that that's considered work. But for Jesus, it was a perfect example of God's priorities. Now, it makes sense what they were saying. Jesus your disciples aren't going to starve to death and wait a couple more hours to eat. But Jesus was letting them know, I have different values, different priorities. He even used the example and he tells the Pharisees a story about King David. And in this example, King David is being chased by Saul. He wasn't king at the time. And Saul's chasing after him and his men. They're trying to kill David and his men. And they've been on the run for a long time and they are like practically starving to death. David goes into the temple, goes to the table of showbread, eats the showbread that is only for God. A clear violation of the law. But Jesus is just illustrating that shows God's priorities. That demonstrating mercy for David and his men in that situation even trumped the sacrificial observance of the law. But that's hard for a Pharisee to understand and accept. It's hard for an accidental Pharisee to understand and accept. Accidental Pharisees, they just have a hard time offering mercy to others. They have a hard time with it. One of the reasons is they feel that then that's their way of saying, well, if I offer mercy to all people, then that's my approving or accepting of whatever it is they're doing, whatever law they're violating, whatever sin they're committing, whatever, however they're different than me. And accidental Pharisees will call loving that person showing mercy, they'll actually call it compromise. But Jesus calls it mercy because mercy is undeserved and It's generous. Let me give you a couple more practical thoughts this morning as we begin to wrap it up, how this plays out in our lives. In Christianity, we have used phrases that that focus specifically on certain language that have caused mercy to be crowded out of our lives at the expense of something else. Let me explain what I mean. For example, we use phrases. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you've used it. I've used these terms. In the world, but not what? In the world, but not of the world. See, everybody's used it. Let me give you another phrase. Hate the sin, love the sinner, right? We've all used them. These phrases have accidentally hurt our witness. They have accidentally harmed our testimony, a couple different reasons. First of all, even saying the phrase and the order of the phrase has kind of given it away for us. Secondly, we have focused on the first part of that phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. We have focused on what we hate, what we are against. we focused on the sin rather than the second part, which says love the person. There's another reason it may not be wise to use these phrases anymore. I would suggest that we get rid of them from our language. Come up with better phrases. There's another reason it's harmful for us is because the they, the them, the Luke 18, you know, 11 people, I thank God that I'm not like them. They identify whatever it is that you don't like about them. They identify with that. That, that, that's part of sometimes even their identity or who they are, their whole person. And so when you and I say, hate the sin, we are actually saying to them, I hate you because you're tied to th- that's their identity. So they never hear or watch you love the sinner. Listen, they already know you hate their sin. You don't have to keep reminding them. You don't have to keep making the jabs. They know you hate what they identify with, whatever your them or they list is. Here's what they don't really know. Do you actually love them? Do you actually have compassion for them? Grace for them? Mercy? Or to say it another way, if you're not building relationships with your them list, how are they ever going to come to Christ? How's it going to happen? If you're saying you can come to Christ, clean all that up, whatever that is for them, clean it up first. How are they going to come to Christ? God's inviting you to build relationships with others. Those who are not like us. So we can demonstrate mercy. One more thought on this. Accidental Pharisees have focused on the hate the sin verses of the Bible. They have focused on the come out and be separate verses of the Bible. To be holy, to be righteous, to be set apart. And they've done that at the expense of some of the heart of Jesus verses. Some of the heart of the gospel verses. So I would encourage you to consider readjusting your focus of the verses you think about. Uh, these were verses literally I didn't do a study or anything it was just the first ones that popped to mind with the, just the first ones that came to mind I just wrote them down and I said I'll leave it at that cuz I could go on and on and on but the first ones that came to mind Matthew chapter 9 what if we focused on when Jesus saw the crowds he had compassion on them What if we focused on Galatians chapter 6 that says don't get tired helping others What if we focus on John 13 where Jesus said as I've loved you you go love others that same way what if we focused on 1 Peter 4, 8 that says, above all, keep, love, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What if we focused on some of those verses? What if we on? Uh, skip that verse, I'm coming back, I jumped ahead. Romans chapter 2, which says God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. What if those became our, our verses that we focused on? One final thought of this as we try to shift our focus to verses that we've done plenty good with hating the sin. And we're going to try to learn how to love the sinner more. So, one final thought. We can't do it alone, we can't go this journey alone. Our passions will cause us to do dumb things, make dumb decisions. We won't see in the mirror the way we're an accidental Pharisees. We need support. We need encouragement. We need help. In a moment, I'll tell you, I told you last week, I'll tell you about my Pool Light Saga, chapter 3. If you weren't here, you'll have to listen to the message from last week. Before I share it, let me read these verses. Hebrews 10 says, Let us consider how to stir one another onto what? To love and good works, and don't neglect meeting together as some are actually in the habit of doing. But let's encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens. 1 Peter 4, eight I just mentioned, above all, keep loving each other earnestly. The point is we really genuinely need each other in this journey towards God and away from being an accidental Pharisee. So last week, Dave, somebody here in our church, David, had compassion and mercy for me and my misguided passion and my misdirected passion. He genuinely wanted to help me after that message. If you're like me, I'd be laughing at that going, good luck, sucker. But, but David genuinely, he came up to me and said, hey, Chris, I really want to help you with this. And and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You know, I'll figure it out. And he's like, no, really, I really do. Will you please, let's do it today. And I'm like, no, 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 go. I said, I said oh, maybe, maybe. I, you know, I was just trying to dismiss him. You know what that was in me, don't you? Pride. I can figure it out. I don't need others. I can figure out being an accidental Pharisee. I don't need others to be brought into this journey that I'm going on. I finally had just a moment of clarity enough to text him and say, all right, if you still mean it, come on over. So he shows up. He never once, never once in our little time we spent together next, he never once judged me. He never condemned me for my clear incompetence. He never looked down on me. He didn't judge me because I wasn't all dialed in and knew everything about, you know, pool lights and electricity and wing nuts and GFI, CI receptacles and and programming. He never once condemned me for that. He knew I was a knucklehead, that I don't have a clue what I'm doing, that I'm the first Thessalonians. I'm the weak. I'm the faint hearted but he never once made me feel less. He never once made me feel like an idiot for my incompetence or what I believed or my behaviors. I hope you're catching the connection. He never once did that. On the other hand, he came alongside of me. And together, we we shared, we talked. We went on this little fix the pool light journey together. And so we tested wires together. We found a whole bunch of bad wires, burned out. If you saw their LifePoint Instagram page, you saw wing nuts or whatever they're called. I don't know if that's the right term. Don't correct me later. Be gentle and kind for the faint-hearted. Because <laughs> I'm, now I'm thinking that's probably not the right term. I'm a wing nut, right? <laughs> we had a bad GFCI plug. Everything was not right. He figured it all out. Here's the short, here's this, here's the that. I said, thanks so much, David. I got it from here, I'm good. He's like, what are you talking about? No, 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 let's go take care of it. I said, no, I'm good, I'm good, I got it, thank you. He said, let's go, we're going to Home Depot, we go to Home Depot, we buy the GFCI plug, we buy a new breaker, we buy new wing nuts, we, you know, we get all the stuff, we come back and together, we begin to put it all back together. Once it was all good to go, Then and only then did David say, all right, now let's talk about this light problem you have. We weren't even dealing with my biggest passionate issue of, I was so passionate that I could fix it. We hadn't even got to the light yet. We were way back here building relationship, having time together, learning and growing and beginning to understand more and more and more. Are you tracking with me on this? Are you making the connection? And then only at that point, when we are in a situation to where now he says, let's pull the light together. I had been resistant because I had been watching all my YouTube advice videos. And I didn't want to take any more of his time and and do any of that because it was gonna take forever. Well, it took a few minutes to do that part and I'll show you the results. (laughs) we did it we actually did it and so your students your kids can come over and they will not die listen thank you David appreciate it we are going to keep screwing up this accidental Pharisee thing. You will and I will. We're going to want to show love and grace and mercy and compassion to people and we're going to keep screwing it up because we're like, how do we do this in real world? And what does that look like? And how do I have conviction and, and the principles of God and be passionately committed to God and show mercy and kindness? And I, How? We're going to screw it up. It's part of what the Bible talks about, the sanctification process, the journey that we're on. So we are going to screw it up. It's a journey and it's a process, which is the very reason we need our Davids to come alongside of us, to help us in that journey. You need others to help you, to process, to see the blind spots, to see your knuckleheadedness, to see where you're weak and failing. And so let us not neglect meeting together with each other as some are in the habit of doing. Let's get together and encourage one another. And then hopefully over time with one another, hopefully we screw up a little less and less and less. So let's build relationships with those not like us and show grace and mercy Let's make sure that we trust God is changing their hearts. That's his job, not mine anyways. And let's encourage each other. It's too difficult to overcome this accidental Pharisee thing on alone, all alone. In fact, you keep trying to do it alone, like me, my pool, you'll make it worse and worse. You might end up causing damage and hurting you and others. We need each other.